This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions on the Theology Corner Podcast Network. I am Stephen Long, and I'm here with Donald Schurschlitt. Did I get that name right? Yeah, you did. Okay, awesome. So, uh, Donald is a fantastic gay Christian blogger. He is on the Medium Podcast Network or not Podcast Network, the Medium Blog Network reaching out. And so before we get started, Donald, could just share some of yourself with us, what you do, and some of your story. Yeah, sure. Thanks for that introduction, too. Yeah, of Um, course. I am a, as a gay Christian blogger, um, activist. In, In my daytime job, I'm a graphic designer, but by night, I fight crime through activism and through writing, basically. Um, I, maybe not actual crime, but spiritual crime. But spiritual um, crime. So, now, you say activism. Is that mostly through your writing online? Through my writing, but I got started um, kind of in the gay Christian world um, as an activist at my college campus, um, Westmont College in Santa Barbara. While I was there, it's a very typical conservative Christian university of about 1,200 students in Santa Barbara, California. And while I was there, I came out and realized that the only way that I was going to survive at that campus without, you know, growing to, like, hate myself over the course of my time there was to make some changes happen. And so that included organizing on campus. So me and a couple friends got together, and we started a group uh, that still exists today Um, I graduated in 2016, um, and the group still exists today, which I'm proud of, uh, that uh, is a community space for LGBT students on campus, um, as well as a organizing group for straight students who are allies and LGBT students who are uh, willing to take part in that part of the work, um, because that's definitely a bit more of a burden for LGBT students to do. So I got started doing that. And then through that, kind of just got more connected into the world of LGBT Christian things. I hadn't really been aware that it even existed until that point. But now I work for Campus Pride. I organize their uh, Shameless. It's their annual Campus Pride is the nation's largest college, college LGBTQ organization providing resources to LGBTQ college students. And I organize their Shameless. It's their annual listing of the worst colleges in America for LGBTQ youth. I bet my college is on that list. Which school did you go to? (laughs) I went to Montreat College. You know, I don't know if that is, but I'm going to jot that one down. You, so we'll you need make... to you need to jot it down because <laughs> it's it's been pretty bad. There's a whole story that I can tell you about that, but it's bad. Oh, I'd love to hear it. Yeah. yeah. Maybe after the show, I will, I will make good. sure Montreat gets on that shit list. Anyway, go on. <laughs> so, um, no, I, so I, I did that. I got involved with the uh, now Q Christian Fellowship and Gay Christian. Uh, which was formerly the Gay Christian Network and um, the Reformation Project. Um, And so I'm currently in their leadership cohort. And I also got uh, more involved with an organization that kind of, I I love activism work, but the way I like to go about activism, um, I think I tend to be a bit of a workhorse. My thinking, I realized when it comes to that that kind of work of uh, uh, creating justice is I start to panic when things aren't getting done because 
in my mind, and this is not what's actually happening, but in my mind, if like I say, okay, we're going to plan this thing and it's going to be, I don't know, it's a sit-in or it's a fundraising campaign or it's uh, simply like a conversation night where we're going to bring in different people to kind of discuss a controversial topic, whatever it is, I tend to be the person who will say, if we don't get this done, like in my, the way my mind works, I'm like, we're setting the world back in <laughs> like, if the moral can, arc of the universe bends toward justice, then we are making that moral arc last a little bit longer. We're, we're, we're unbending the arc just a exactly, bit. I exactly. totally, I totally get that. I, I have the same mentality. I have the same kind of workhorse social justice mentality. So you're really busy. You're involved in a lot of activism and all kinds of stuff, which is great. The way you ended up on my radar was through a really incredible article you wrote called I'm gay and Christian and oh yeah, I'm HIV positive too. And it's it's just I recommend everyone listening to go and read the article because it's just this incredibly poignant, really powerful look into what it's like to be gay and Christian and HIV positive. And that was that article was kind of your coming out as HIV positive. To kind of start off here, take me and my listeners to that point when you first found out that you are HIV positive. And what was that like for you? And help us re-experience that with you. Yeah. Um, as I was saying um, a little bit, because it just ties in as all. I'm a bit of a workhorse and I think what God has taught me for has been trying to get through my head for several years now and is finally maybe starting to work is self-care and emotional wellness as a spiritual practice and discipline and uh, as something that is not necessarily separate from a lot of the work I do, graphic design or writing or activism. It's not like, oh, I do those things. And then when in my spare time, I take time for self-care. It's that the self-care is part of the work. It is an integral aspect of the work and and it being effective. Exactly. So last spring, I was at a place where I was actually getting to a point where I understood that. I had started a new job in the fall of 2016 um, that I really loved, and it kind of brought me out of a rut um, that I was in for a little bit. And I was getting out. I had stepped away from a lot of the college activism stuff I had done because I had graduated. And so I was really in just a much better place than I had been in a long time. In May of 2017, when I received my diagnosis, I had a boyfriend at that point, um, we had just started dating, and I still have him. It's not. <laughs> and he and I just, you know, since we had just started dating officially, uh, we both knew we didn't really have any STDs or anything. Um, but we wanted to go in just to, like, quadruple check. Um, so I went in for a routine test. I got my blood done. I got all the tests and everything and drove home and, like, didn't think about it and figured I'd get the results emailed to me in a few days like they usually do and then so didn't even think about it for a little bit and as I said I was doing it in a much 
that are placed. One of the ways I think a lot of gay men struggle with uh, self-care and emotional health and like what they do in times of distress uh, is reach out in sexual ways to other people um, and try to fill some holes there. I know I've been guilty of that. And uh, so I haven't had any like unhealthy sexual experiences in a while, which is good. Um, And so, but the last one I had is the one that I definitely remember uh, and know is where I was zero converted, uh, where I was given HIV unknowingly. I don't even know if this person knew they had HIV, but I didn't at the time. I just thought I was going in for a routine test. When the doctor called me, I was at work and I stepped out because it was, you know, a, a private call. Um, and I had my own office or I had an office share with some people. Um, and so I stepped outside and I was like, Hey, what's up? Um, and I knew at that point, since she was calling me, that I probably had tested positive for something, you know, any of the long stream of STDs that are out there, gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis, something, um, which can all be kind of taken care of with just uh, antibiotics and care. And she was like, are you sitting down? And I was like walking around the block at this point, And I was like, I'm just, I was like, I'm just walking around outside and everything. And she goes, okay, I think you should sit down. And I was like, wow, this is going to be really dramatic for like gonorrhea. You know, gonorrhea doesn't need me to sit down for it. <laughs> Not that I have like vast wealth of experience with gonorrhea, but you know, I'm just like, this is nothing. So I stopped and I like sat down, you know, doctor's orders. And I, um, and that's when she told me I had HIV and I think mostly I was shocked and a little frustrated because instantly I knew when I had received HIV and I knew like who had given it to me and because it's not like I I sleep around. Um, So, um, and so I knew where that had come from and I was frustrated uh, because I think I just started dating my lovely, wonderful boyfriend. And um, I knew this would affect his life. So I wasn't super scared because I'm pretty big on like, one of my like passions for young queer fellows is, uh, and lady queers is um, sexual health. So I like, no, I like just casually will read about, you know, HIV, so for kicks and giggles. But because of that, I thought I had, would know all the steps to take um, to avoid HIV um, and any STD, really, um, and knew what know what to do. Um, and so when I went back into work, so the doctor hung up the phone and everything, and I kind of like sat outside for a little bit, and I called my sister, and I told her, and she didn't know what to say either, because um, what do you say? And then I went back into work and I sat down at my boss because I was like, I can't work the rest of the day. I was like, I need a day. And I told my boss what happened and she didn't know what to say either. And it was just like, no one knew what to say because in 2018, when someone gets HIV, it's not a death sentence anymore. Right. It's a life change for sure. Yeah. But it's, it's honestly like, it's not like even receiving news of cancer. Yeah, exactly. It's it's 
it's better news than cancer. It's, you oh, know, it, it's not. It's far better news than cancer. Would you say that the shift is more a social and cognitive one? Do you in your, com- okay, so I live here in the South. And, you know, I live in the Bible Belt and here in the Bible Belt, you know, I know a a lot of pause people here and the great burden that they have to bear is not the physical burden. It is not the physical medical burden. Like, yeah, it's tedious sometimes, but that's okay. And they'll live long, perfectly healthy lives. The burden is the the social stigma here in the south and even in the gay community here in the south has that been similar to your experience so i'm really lucky frankly to live in california which is you know like the scandinavia of america in terms of like social liberalism <laughs> and um, i and i am in i don't know what comparison can be made for this. you're in the america of america i so, am um, i am in the america of america exactly <laughs> so, um that's who we are is there california is the weirdos and so for me i think i didn't know anyone who's hiv positive who's hiv positive I knew I had lots of queer people in my life and, you know, HIV was something we all were aware of, but no one had ever had it. And I kind of, so I didn't really know who to reach out to. Um, so I leaned on my friends, um, you know, regardless of, I didn't need, they didn't need to have HIV to understand some of the pain I was dealing with. And so there wasn't too much of like, as far as like a social burden or stigma, there wasn't too much. I reached out to my local LGBT center, which I'd already, I knew all the people there really well. I told them about my diagnosis. They were able to provide me with some resources and support. The doctor's team was really great and provided me with support. I was able to get on medication uh, within two weeks of receiving my diagnosis. And to they also had, you know, a caseworker who could provide counseling services um, or if I needed help with you know, finding a job, which I didn't, or housing, which I didn't, um, because I'm lucky enough to have both of those, that they could provide me support there. And so I had a lot of support from all over the place. I think what has been the challenge of being HIV positive in this day and age, where again, it's weirdly still a big deal, because it is a lifelong disease, even though it's not a like disease that's necessarily going to kill you anymore if you're able to access healthcare, of course, uh, is figuring out how to integrate it into your life because mm. it is it is a mindset shift, as you said. Um, it, there's a cognitive shift with it, but on the outside, you look, you feel the same, and it's something that frankly has been a challenge for me um, simply because. I do this activist work. People in these worlds, obviously, we talk a lot about overlapping identities of intersectionality, of race and gender and sexuality and class and ability. And HIV is one of those things that in the past would have formed a much more potent identity, I think, because it marked you as diseased, as unclean, as unsafe. Um, and as not long for this world. Mm. And now that's all kind of gone away. So it's kind of 
is there an identity with HIV? Is there something that you need to even work into your life? For me, I think a lot of that is where I'm figuring out the, is what I'm figuring out. I think a lot of that is what I'm figuring out um, because I am, and I'm actually working on this for a piece I'm writing. I saw BPM. It's a French film about ACT UP, the AIDS organizing group, in, in the Paris chapter of ACT UP. It's a gorgeous film and well-made. And I think the stories told there are so powerful because it was set during the AIDS crisis. Um, yes. When hundreds of thousands of gay men and women and ge- other genders died. Um, I don't want to be exclusive. Um, when hundreds of thousands of gay people, queer people died. That's obviously not the case anymore, for the most part, in developed countries like America and France. Um, And so I don't think HIV-positive people have figured out what their story looks like now. The HIV narrative was so important in tapping into, in many ways, into building the push for marriage equality exactly for protections and housing and job discrimination um the push for the modern gay rights movement um if stonewall was kind of the first spark of that and harvey milk came along along with other queer politicians and started to tap into that potential hiv is i think not to give credit to a deadly disease but the crisis in our community's response to uh, to it, so the LGBT community's response to HIV, showed the power of queer people in crisis. Yes, um, and showed that we were a political force to be reckoned with. That yeah. we could bend whole nations to our will if we wanted to. I think that's really powerful. That's really vital for queer people to know, and that's something that, again, shaped the modern gay rights movement. Marriage equality wouldn't have happened without the HIV organizing movement of ACT UP and other organizations. But since then, there are still people who have survived the AIDS crisis and are HIV positive or survived and weren't HIV positive and then years later got diagnosed with it. There are people like me who weren't alive during the AIDS crisis and are now living with HIV And for all of us, I think we're facing this sort of weird philosophical question of what do we, what do our stories look like? We tend to commemorate the dead of the people killed from HIV in the crisis really well. I think for the people who, especially for the people who survived those years, so the people older than me, of course, um, but as well as the people who are currently living with HIV who weren't around for the crisis. We tend to forget they're there. We remember the dead and we forget the living. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's really interesting that you bring that up because I think the gay community in general, the at least the impression I get is that the gay community in general and, and the queer community is kind of struggling as a whole to know how HIV fits into our narrative right now, in part because we have these miraculous cures, or not cures, but we have these miraculous life-extending medicines that drastically improve the quality of life. And so now people can live, you know, undetectable. And that's amazing. And that's a miracle. And, And so I feel like we're kind of struggling to know where this really 
horrifically traumatic experience in our history fits into our identity right now and you know with with HIV positive people in our community right now i i also sometimes feel like and and of course you know i'm here in the mountains of north carolina i'm in the asheville area which is liberal for the south but it's still the south and so i'm sure my experience is different from yours but so here in the south at least hiv is on the rise it's on the rise in the gay community especially among guys our age and younger and that tends to be linked to more homophobic areas of course that that tends to be linked to areas that do not speak openly about about sexuality in general but also there's just this this loss of gay history and identity in these areas where i i get the sense that that there are large swaths of the gay population in America, our age, that are just totally disconnected from this heritage and totally disconnected from this history and the horrific struggles that our community went through in the 80s and 90s. And in part because of, I, I mean, that's part of a larger disconnect with homosexuality, with sexuality in general in, in these areas and this larger homophobia in general, where there's just this erasing of our history and there and this identity. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to talk about it. And I think in part that contributes to the rise of HIV, of a uh, failure to just understand safe sex practices. I can't count the number of guys I've talked to who I've just who I've had to explain safe sex to because they just don't know. And um, I don't know if I'm making much sense. I hope I'm, I'm communicating what I mean to say, which is I feel like the gay community in general is just kind of very confused, especially here in the South, about their identity and where HIV fits within yeah. that. Yeah. And that can contribute to the rise of HIV. Right. Going off of that, I think... Um... You're very much right. I think there's a statistic in Jackson, Mississippi, I want to say. I think I read this. I think Jackson, Mississippi, 40% of gay men have HIV in that town, in that city. And when the HIV crisis was going on, a lot of the attention was in New York, uh, which had become, you know, gay Mecca, and is still, in many ways, gay Mecca, along with San Francisco, and ACT UP chapters started everywhere and did work everywhere. But it started in New York for a reason. And that's because there's so, an influx of queer people there. That influx of queer people created a culture that was more accepting of queer people, I think. Because New York had obviously also had a very diverse population of people of all backgrounds. And so I think when I think of places like the South, and to be fair, I don't live there, so I don't want to paint with too broad a brush here. But I will say factually, Indiana is, I don't know if they count as the South or not, but they have NASCAR there, so they are, I think, Rust the belt. South. They're Rust Belt. Okay, that works. That's the phrase I'm going to use for them. So um, <laughs> Indiana, where Mike Pence is from, had an HIV outbreak when Mike Pence was governor. Yes. That Mike Pence created. Yes. Mike Pence created an HIV outbreak in his state by slashing funding to Planned Parenthood, which was in many, which was in at least one county, but really in many counties, the only HIV testing center in the area. Exactly. Um, and he was morally opposed to needle exchanges. And one way that isn't talked about enough, in especially in the gay community, where hardcore drug use is on the rise as well, especially in places like 
West Hollywood, San Francisco, New York, um, in those urban areas where they're easy to get. Hardcore drug use, um, meth, and heroin are on the rise, just like they are in the rest of the country. And Mike Pence thought that that would promote that having clean needle exchanges would, for drug addicts would um, or drug users, would increase drug use. And that's statistically untrue. And it exactly. also promotes sharing when you can't exchange your needles you share needles and yes hiv can live in an in a needle of a drug user for up to 90 days i believe yes so longer than most other environments um because of the lack of oxygen in the needle in science i don't know um so um and so that was dangerous and so we're in a time i think where especially given the current state of politics where I think a lot of the conversation when Trump was elected was around around within the LGBT community. There's a lot of fears of what Trump would roll back, and he's rolled back a lot. And so far, I yes. think in many ways, the LGBT community has been spared from some of the worst parts of that. But at least like in terms of specific LGBT issues, we've obviously been affected because there's LGBT dreamers and there's LGBT immigrants. But I think a lot of the like like marriage equality has been rolled back and i think that was a fear that kind of went viral online because gays are dramatic i don't know um <laughs> and that said well say goodbye to marriage equality which isn't the case although we have seen at least one country now roll back marriage equality after passing it yes but i don't necessarily think america is about to do that but i do think america could easily have any scd outbreak rise up Already, like, one in six people have herpes um, yes. in America. And I think we could very easily see HIV come back. The Centers for Disease Control stated, I believe, that Trump's, like, budget cuts to disease prevention programs and to places like Planned Parenthood, which provide STD testing to low-income individuals, would increase several diseases but hiv uh, is one of those of course and you know you're you're hitting on, i'm sorry go on and then i'll no I'll, no you're fine you're fine keep going so you're you're hitting on something that i think makes me the most angry which is the way in which a lot of conservative policymakers and culture at large creates the conditions for outbreaks of disease creates the conditions for Things that they then point at as evidence of the depravity of a certain minority when they were the ones who created the conditions in the first place. They point to HIV and other STDs as a sign of sexual immorality, of cultural decline, when the reality is that in many of these areas, they are the ones who created the conditions for that outbreak in the first place. Right. Through lack of education, through lack of adequate sex education, through a culture of puritanical suppression, through a culture that denies the need for sexual health care, for reproductive rights, and so on, they are creating a culture in which minorities find it very hard to live full lives. And then they point to that and say, see, look at the lives they're living. This is proof that they are broken, sinful human beings. When no one stops to consider that they were the ones who created those conditions in the first place. And it, and it, it just speaks to the 
to how power is invisible to itself, how power generally is unconscious of of itself and and the way it shapes the world around it in a lot of ways. And so you're hitting on on something that just infuriates me. It and you're absolutely right how HIV was instrumental in the rise of gay marriage because when we create a culture where and and to me it isn't even so much about marriage it's about having the social supports for healthy meaningful kinship bonds between individuals mm-hmm. and when society does not offer that support when society does not offer the secure attack the, the the support for secure attachments between individuals that minority that is that is not being supported will of course find themselves in the throes of something like the AIDS epidemic in the 80s and 90s is what I'm saying making sense? I don't. I don't know yeah. how well. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm always so cautious to talk about this stuff because a I don't have HIV. I, I'm not HIV positive, and you know, I I have limited exposure. But this is just the stuff that you know through right. through my reading and through you know my friendships. This is the stuff that I've been thinking about and don't often have an opportunity to articulate. Right. I was gonna say as um someone who's living with HIV now, I think I similarly, when I was first diagnosed and was trying to figure out if I was ever going to talk about it with anyone, um, I think I similarly, though, felt, it's funny you're saying you don't feel comfortable. I didn't feel comfortable talking about being HIV because I didn't feel like I had earned the ability. And that's fair. I think it's okay to say, I'm just going to listen for a little bit. Oh, absolutely. And learn what other people are saying and read. But, and to recognize that as an important skill to have. But I do think, so when I was first writing that piece that you read on reaching out, I was really cautious in writing it. I didn't want to say anything out of turn. I wanted to acknowledge my privilege as a white gay man who's mm-hmm. cisgender, who it was born with, who's had healthcare his whole life because he was born into a middle-class home um, in America. The luck of and the draw. Exactly. And, yeah. um, and that's not something to be ashamed of, but it's something to recognize. Absolutely. And I think, but I do think for me, the, a lot of the problems that we're facing come from not talking about the reality of HIV enough and the fact that it still very much exists. And that we have tens of thousands of new diagnoses every year in America. And those are rising, as you said, their diagnosis is on the rise. And I think it was funny what you were saying about HIV to go back to this HIV giving rise to the gay marriage fights, um, which we've been talking about a little bit, but also, as you said, to kind of just giving guys the ability to have healthy sexual bonds, um, kinship bonds with other guys and for women to have healthy kinship bonds with other women and for gender fluid and non-gender conforming people to have healthy kinship bonds with whoever they want, you know, for everyone to do that, which is something that has been denied to queer people for so long. Um, I will say, I think, um, there's a really powerful line or exchange in the normal heart, which is Larry Kramer's play turned into an HBO film a couple years back by Ryan Murphy. Larry Kramer Creed was one of the founders of ACT UP, um, the original chapter in New York. One Um, of the, one of the first really incredible heroes in, in in regards to the HIV 
yes. epidemic. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a really great exchange where the doctor, um, Emma, in the film, it's played by Julia Roberts. Um, and I've only ever seen the film and read the book. I haven't or read the play. I haven't seen it performed oh, live. But uh, there's a really powerful exchange. Where she's first talking to some gay men in a gay organizing group. And she basically is telling them to cool it, to stop fucking each other. Um, excuse me, to stop having sex with each other. And um, she says, um, basically, like, if she's like, if I told you that having sex could kill you, wouldn't you stop doing it? And what's crazy is that that's what happened with a lot of gay men in the AIDS crisis. A lot of gay men did stop having sex because they were so afraid of HIV. Yes. And that's not talked about. But the fear around the HIV movement or the HIV crisis um, and around gay rights movement, I think, is, yes, gay marriage equality but before that there it was the fear of fucking the fear of sex um because and that was the line it said basically she was like the worst that could happen if you like don't have sex is that you know you'll have cooled it for a while you'll have missed out on some guys and i was like no that's not all that's going to happen he's like if that happens guys are going to become afraid of sex and guys will lose self-respect and guys will view themselves as being scapegoated um they will become the burden bearers they will become the ones who are said that you know they will become the ones that have to carry the burden of not giving hiv to the straight people that will have to carry that burden and i think tying that back into the modern day a little bit because i think that's really a powerful point and i don't think that's an unfair statement to make. I think in I think gay sex can be political Absolutely. In, in that it's outside the norm. And I think to put the burden on gay men, I think we should be talking about HIV more, but we should recognize that straight people get HIV too. Exactly. And that we should be talking about the... When HIV first became an issue, it was only ever news when it affected straight people. It, when it, when gay people affected it, it was just par for the course. It was just norm. It's like, it's. I think of it, and I don't want to draw too broad a brush again because I don't want to compare these issues to each other. But um, when black children are shot down by police or by in the streets, we don't really talk about it. But when white kids get shot up, like in like recently in Florida, it which was. Of course, by all means, a tragedy. Or Columbine. Or Columbine. Which, of course, it, was a horrific tragedy. Right. However, that had, that had happened many times over in non-white right. schools and communities. And we didn't talk about it because it was seen as the norm. We were like, oh, it's just what those people go through. And that's completely wrong. And that's not at all to diminish the tragedy of Columbine or Parkland. It's to say that that is the normal for everyone at this point. And with when it comes to HIV, it's become a normal for everyone. And it should be seen as that. And it should be seen, and more than that, it should be seen as a tragedy when queer people die. It should be seen as a tragedy when black children die in shootings. And we often don't see it as that, whether or not it's the normal. And so I think to, again, tie all of these strands together a little bit, the 
fear around, um, I think, HIV today uh, in gay communities is that is is less on the resurgence of HIV, which is a good fear to have, um, but also on a very fair other fear, which is that if we talk too much about HIV, if we make too big of a deal of it, it'll go back to being seen as a gay disease. It's and that if we because because they want everyone to be talking about it and they want straight people to talk about it and if we are told if but if the gay people are the ones who start it it's seen as a gay issue it's not seen as an issue and if we are seen if we are talking about HIV and HIV prevention um, and, and pushing forward to be talked about in schools and in churches and in community groups for everyone then will be the ones seen as responsible for it. And it will go back to this debate of, well, fine, if you want HIV to stop, maybe you HIV people should just stop having sex with other people. Um, I mean, recently, October, in last October, the wife of uh, Tom Price, who was the former health secretary of the U.S., said in Georgia, she said in a, in, in a conversation with the doctor, uh, she was like, I don't want to say it, but can't we quarantine homosexuals who are I HIV positive? That. Yeah, that um, was awful. Which was disgusting, but that's the thing that I think a lot of gay people are afraid of is they're saying if we make too big of a deal out of HIV, yes. then we are going to make the moral right, moral in quotes, the, the far right and the conservatives and uh, evangelical Christians who are Trump's base, um, fear us more than ever, avoid talking about HIV. It's going to hurt them, and it's going to scapegoat us, and it's going to make us the ones who have to carry the burden of HIV, even though it's not our burden anymore. Exactly. It never was our burden. It's always been everyone's burden. Exactly. And, and so basically what I'm hearing is you say, you know, the fear is that if we make HIV, our rallying cry as the gay community, that puts undue burden on us and it lead, it, it it opens the door for the right to say, well, let's just fucking quarantine them. Right. Yeah, exactly. Which is a very real fear in the Trump era, I Abs think. It is absolutely a legitimate fear. You know, also, you speak to something that I that I've been thinking about quite a bit. And it's something that I don't think I have a really good grasp on, but I've been working on it, which is, I think in our culture lately, a lot of the solutions have been to kind of pinpoint the problem and then fix that one little thing within the body of society. When the reality is that what needs to change is the entire body. What needs to change is the is society as a whole. And so, you know, for example, the reality that HIV and AIDS globally is less an issue of being gay or not, it's more an issue of poverty. You know, my partner has spent a lot of time in Haiti doing humanitarian work, and in Haiti, HIV is, is a class issue. HIV is a matter of oppression and class, and it's a, it, it is a disease of poverty. In America, it's more connected, and, and in the Western world in general, it is more connected to being gay. But what we miss is that 
it won't fix anything if it's just the gay people who are quote unquote fixed in regards to their approach to HIV. What it has to change is our attitudes towards sex, legislation in regards to sex across the United States, cultural shifts, and globally a shift in power that allows people to have access to care that is affordable, that is totally treatable, and they don't have it. And so when we, to me, focusing, there, there is a flip side of focusing on, on minorities sometimes. I feel like one of the problems is that when we, when we try to just correct a problem within a specific minority, we're, it's a superficial cure. And we aren't actually addressing the problem. The problem is that the entire body needs a total revamping. The entire system, the entire culture needs to be shifted, not just the gay culture. And globally, there has to be a restructuring of power so that people, the millions of people who have HIV and AIDS can receive the care that is completely affordable and they can't afford it. I'm finding more and more that we are drawn to superficial cures. And, you know, I see something similar kind of in the way uh, Hollywood and the media is responding to, like, the Me Too movement, where, yes, I absolutely want to see predators ousted. But you know what I also want to see is the culture and the people who were complicit also ousted. Like, what about the entire board of directors? What about the entire com community of people who knew, who were in power and enabled? What about them? And so to simply take this scalpel and try to fix this one tiny thing, which absolutely needed to be fixed, like Harvey Weinstein needed to, needed to, you know, be kicked out. Absolutely. He needed to be brought to justice. But just bringing the predators to justice is not enough. Mm -hmm. it, it's also the culture and the systems of power that enabled it to begin with. And if we don't fix right. those, then it will happen all over again, you know? Absolutely. You know, and Absolutely. so and so you're kind of hitting on something that I've been thinking about a lot. One final question that I want to ask you. So you're an activist, you, but you're also a person of faith. And one of the things that I was curious about, one, one thing that I wanted to hear your hear more of your story on is how has this impacted your faith? How has this been absorbed? How has your experience as an HIV positive person? How has that interacted with you as a person of faith? It's a really good question. I think it's hard because I, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, I'm still figuring out what HIV looks like in my life. Um, I've talked to since connected a lot of with a few HIV people, you know, online over Twitter um, and in real life, and they like take their pill daily um, that they have to take, and they don't really talk about it with anyone. Um, it's just not something that needs to come up for them. It's and and that's completely fair, and I don't think that that's a wrong place to be, and maybe that's where I'll end up. Is maybe just not talking about HIV on a personal level, but still talking about it more on an institutional level. 
But I do think, for me, I try to be a pretty integrated person. I tend to resist when I, like, shutter off a part of my life. Um, I tend to resist when I notice I'm doing that. Um, I try to be integrating, you know, my queerness and my faith and my HIV positive status and my education and my what I studied in school and my job. I want to like mash them all together and see what happens. I think I tend to view them as one whole rather than as several parts of me. And and some people don't operate like that and that's fine. That's just how I operate. And I think and that doesn't mean I'm gonna talk about HIV constantly all the time to everyone I meet as often as I talk about my job or my faith or whatever. But I do think I'm still figuring out the best way that HIV will enter into my faith. One thing that's obvious to me that I wrote about is I identify a lot more now with those that society casts out due to disease, like the lepers is the example that I think of. Um, but also you can go back to even, or to just uncleanness, which you can go back to Old Testament laws about casting out women after they started uh, their menstrual cycle um, to for because they were unclean when that was happening. I think for me, I would say that when I read those stories now, especially in especially knowing that like the wife of one of our well now former but uh, like leaders of the our government's like health programs and health initiatives uh, like said we should quarantine queer people who are HIV positive, which is exactly what they did in Jesus's day with the lepers is a little disgusting. And I think for me, one part of that story that sticks with me is the fact that the lepers had a cure and that cure, which to be fair, was miraculous. It was Jesus healed them of their disease. And I definitely am not going to say, I don't think that's how it works today. I don't think Jesus is going to heal me of my HIV. Uh, just like I don't think he'll heal me of my gayness um, or something like that. So I don't think that's how it's going to work. And so I've been grappling a lot with what does that mean? Does that mean, hmm. you know, should I believe more? Should I expect that, you know? And so I think if anything, that gives me hope for a cure, though, in my lifetime. And I do think we're, we've been talking a little bit about what the HIV narrative looks like today for people who are living with the disease um, and not really knowing because, you, as we said, it's kind of in a, a moment of stasis. Things are kind of level for now where, yeah, people get diagnosed and it is and it is going up. But in general, the, there's not momentum behind it. And we know how to get people to live with the disease. Right. And right. people aren't dying of it. And I think the next step, the next logical step there, though, and one that has been you know, that people are still working on. I'm not a doctor or a researcher, so I can't speak to how much work is being done or something. But I, I know as an activist that we can always be pushing for more, is more research into the disease and more potentials for a cure. Because I do think the next logical step in our, in our narrative and how we treat HIV is to make it a thing of the past and to end HIV. I mean, if we can end things like polio 
then we can certainly end a sexually transmitted disease like HIV. And I do think that that's one way that I think just actually, maybe that's not how HIV has affected my faith, that's how faith has affected my take on HIV, is in a hope for a cure. And then also in the fact that when those lepers um, were cast out of society, I can't imagine that any of them, I can't imagine that they never thought of just going back and being like, no, we're here. Like, we're not leaving. I can't, but they never had the ability to do that. They never felt like they had the power to do that. No one had ever come up to them and said, hey, you don't need to be cured for me to be around you. You don't Mm. need to be healthy for me to be around you. Mm. And when Jesus did that, yeah, he healed them. But I don't think Jesus, like, if Jesus hadn't healed them, he still would have hung out with these guys. He still would have loved them. Um, Mm. And I think, and I can't imagine for some, that all of them were cast out by their families. I imagine people in their families miss them and want to be with them. I imagine that there are a lot of broken relationships along the way when they were cast out from society. There's a lot of pain, so all sides. And so I think when I think about the ways we talk about HIV and stigmatizing HIV and stigmatizing anyone with any sort of disability um, or disease um, that they're living with, a lot of the time it's a self-oppression and a self-stigmatization as much as it is outside forces. Absolutely. And I think often what it takes to organize people and to put and to then push for a cure, but also to restore broken relationships that come because of the way our society has built stigmas and forced people who are diseased and ill out of our daily lives is simply saying you don't need to be healed to be whole and you don't need to be healed to be loved and you certainly don't need to be healed to come back to society. You don't need to be healed to be a part of our society that's valued and loved and that is treated equally. And I think that's been a big comfort for me. I think I already had some of that personally because I did activism work before this diagnosis. I think I already kind of had some of those just mindsets that were really then beneficial when I was diagnosed. But I think a lot of people who are diagnosed with HIV don't and who are disabled or who are disabled, or just who are marginalized in general by society, oftentimes I think the way to build action, the way to build work toward justice, comes with ending the self-stigma, with ending the self-hatred, with ending the internalized shame. That's just as big of a factor as the rest. Like I said, those guys, some of them may have been forced out of their homes, but I'll bet a lot of those guys in the Bible who were kicked out of their homes went willingly because they thought they had done this to themselves. Mm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think for someone to come along and say, this wasn't your fault. You didn't do this to yourself. This isn't a punishment for your sin. This isn't a punishment. This isn't how the world works. God is not giving you leprosy because you have sex with a guy or HIV because you had sex with a guy. Mm-hmm. That's not what's going on. Um, I think to say that to someone is deeply powerful and enables them 
to see themselves in a new way of being still worthy of love and worthy of acceptance in society. And so to me, I think that's a really powerful thing to hear. Absolutely. I think that's a great note to end on. Donald, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Uh, thank you so much for, for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for spending time with me. And you are a beautiful human being. And thank you so much for sharing your story and your work. Where can people find you if they would like to get in touch with you or find your writing? To get in touch with me, the best way is probably Twitter. Um, I'm on Twitter at Donnie Sure Legit. Um, which is a dumb nickname my friend in high school gave me, but <laughs> I will, and I will post, uh, I, I will post your Twitter handle on the show notes. Yeah. Thank you. And then, um, I'm also on medium at medium.com slash at Donald Lawrence. Um, but I've actually been doing most of my writing now for uh, level ground, this LA based nonprofit, um, that I'm working with to start an arts and culture and faith. A magazine uh, that deals with these issues, intersectional justice um, and progressive spirituality. Um, so our first issue drops on March 5th and we are um, having, we have several articles from a really diverse team of writers. Um, I'm writing about being HIV positive and the film BPM, which I think I mentioned and the Oscars. And I'm also, we also have several other great writing uh, pieces. So I'll be writing a lot there as well. Fantastic. Well, keep doing the awesome work that you're doing. And thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, really. Uh, if you enjoy this podcast and want to support it, please go to sbradfordlong.com where you can read my dozens of articles on faith and doubt, LGBT issues, and whatever strikes my fancy. Go to theologycorner.net to listen to more shows like this one. Special thanks to my team, Carson Green, Justin Caleb Bryant, for keeping me sane. Also, I have one last favor to ask you. If you enjoy this show, if you get value out of it, please go to iTunes or wherever you listen. Leave me a nice five-star review that will really help me expand my audience. All right, we'll see you next week.